we are now entering into the second command. Chapter 12, verses 32 through chapter 13, verses 18. And this is the command, you shall have no other images before me. The prophets fall into that command. So he's saying that not only does the command mean that you shall not worship other idols and images, he's saying that you're not allowed to have other images leading you in a false kind of a way. If I choose an image, my prophet, then they may lead you because they're my prophet. But don't think that every prophet is my image. Now, what if people rise up among you and they begin to encourage you to go off towards other gods or they begin to act as a false prophet? Now, this is new. He's never talked about this yet. Because right now, who was the prophet controlling everything? Moses. Now they're going to go into a land where they're going to start spreading out and God is going to begin to lay the gift of prophet upon more individuals than just Moses. And then the question becomes, how do I know if this prophet is from Yahweh or not? And so the first thing you must understand is a prophet. What is a prophet? We kind of talked about it a little bit with Moses but the prophets don't really start becoming very prominent until kind of judges and really big time in Samuel and Kings. But our word prophet literally just means proclaimer. Okay, someone who proclaims. And the prophet had two primary tasks. The first one was to declare the will of Yahweh to the people. He proclaimed or declared the will of Yahweh to the people. So he came along and he told you, what is God's will for your life as a nation? That was his primary task. And that kind of makes sense as we read through the prophets that are basically telling you everything that God expects or what he's going to do. The second role of the prophet is the prophet was a guardian of the covenant law or a watchdog. The prophet was responsible for guarding the covenant law. So he was responsible for guarding it and making sure that it wasn't twisted or rephrased or taught in a wrong way. And he was also responsible for executing the judgments for those who violated the law. So he became the physical manifestation of God on earth among his people. And he would speak on God's behalf, thus saith the Lord, and he would punish people for violating the law. Now, what gave him this unique privilege? Why did he get to do this? Or she, they're female prophets as well. Why did he or she get to do this when nobody else got to do this? Because he was part of something that we haven't really briefly talked about with Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis. But he was part of this thing called the Divine Council of Yahweh. Now, it's not officially called the Divine Council of Yahweh in the Bible, but it is called the council that God brings this council forward. And the only people allowed in the council are divine beings. And so throughout the Bible, I'll give you some examples. Um, in 2 Kings, a prophet by the name of Micaiah goes up into the Divine Council. He has a vision of God and a whole bunch of angels kind of deciding on things. 
And then when we get to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is brought up into this chamber of God, and there's a whole bunch of seraphim, and they're deciding things. Who will go and speak this message? And they're just deciding it. And then when you get to Zechariah, he has a vision where he's taken up into God's divine council, and there's a bunch of angels deciding who's going to be the high priest now that they're out of exile. And then John is taken up in the divine council, and you see all these angels and God talking about what they're going to do in the final days of Revelation. And Amos is brought up in the book of prophets, and he, God talks to him and some angels, and they're deciding things. And there's several places where we get these imagery where there's all these angelic-like beings in heaven, and God is making decisions, and he's bringing his counsel forward, and he's making decisions with them. And one place in 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 21 or 22, um, he says, Who will entice Ahab, an evil king, to go into war so he can die? I want Ahab to die in battle. So who's going to do it? And and it says, one spirit, one angel set up and said, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. So there's a sense where God is kind of like saying, you are my servants, and I'm asking. And then he even asks for advice. How are you going to do it? And one says, I'll do it this way. And another one says, I'll do it this way. And then God says, I like that one. Go, do it. Now, I know on the surface it feels like, wow, God needs help. He doesn't know what to do. He's giving you the advice of angels, that kind of stuff. Don't think of it that way. Because remember, who has the final word on what gets done? Yahweh. Okay, yes, he's asking for opinions and examples and ideas. But ultimately, in the end, it's he who decides to do it. All the other ones, the book of Job. You see the divine counsel there. He is finally one deciding. But here's the thing. Has he commanded you to go out and share the gospel and be a witness to people? Yes. Does he need you to do it? No. Has he commanded you to build ministries and expand the garden and change your environments, your corporations and your jobs and your... Yes, but does he need you to change all that? No. God doesn't have a divine counsel, and he doesn't have us because he needs us. He has us because he's a relational being who wants to do it with us. He wants us to join him, and he wants us to have a role in building it. For the same reason I gave you this example a while ago, like I don't need my daughters to build things. My daughters slow me down. Sometimes they've made some mistakes that taken me longer to fix them. But my daughters join me in doing things because I enjoy doing it with them. And I enjoy them having a role in creating it with me. So that at the end of the day, we can say, we did this together as a family. And they have a memory, a tactile experience, an investment in this where they can say, I'm a part of this too. And they feel more connected and more part of it. And it's more of them when they're involved in it. I could easily say, I don't need you. 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 You do that enough years and eventually they have had no role in creating the family that we live in. And they've been taught that they are not needed. So what God does, he says, I want you, I want you, I want you. I want you to go out and be my witnesses. I want you to go out and be the example. I want you to go out and expand the garden. Not that I need you, but because I want you to be a part of this. I want you in the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes back to earth, to look at the creation and say, 
part of this creation is redeemed because I had a role in it. That, that, and that, and that is better than what it used to because I was a part of it. And no, I know I couldn't have done it without God, but I had hands-on in it. And that builds relationships with God, and it builds relationships with other people. And so God has his divine counsel with the angels because that's the kind of a God he is. But the only people, well, let's rephrase it this way, the only beings that are ever on the divine council are angels, divine beings. That's why it's called the divine council. We never, ever, ever, ever see humans ever on the divine council except for the prophet. The prophet is the only exception. He's the only, or she, is the only human that you ever see. And so, here's the thing. He or she is brought into the divine council because there's something about them that they're just an incredibly righteous being. And God has rewarded them with the privilege of having a place in the divine council that no other human has because their obedience and their faithfulness to Yahweh has granted them that privilege. So the reality is, therefore, he is given something that nobody else has. The Holy Spirit is placed upon him. Now, right now, at this point in history, the only person who has the Spirit upon them is the prophets. Later, we'll learn that the kings also get it, but there's no kings yet. And we kind of get the sense that the high priest gets it as well. But there's... Sometimes we see that certain priests get it, but it doesn't seem that all priests got it. But every prophet has the Holy Spirit rest upon it. Now remember, the Holy Spirit doesn't indwell anybody yet because the only way the Holy Spirit can live in you as a sinner is if sin is first paid for and dealt with, and Christ hasn't done it yet. That's what makes Pentecost so revolutionary. So the Spirit comes upon him. Now here's the thing. That means who is the only person who knows the divine will of God? The prophet. The prophet is the only one that God knows God's will. That's why, you remember when the people said, we don't want to hear God's voice at Mount Sinai. We can't handle it. You, Moses, you go to God. You listen to him. You, and then you come back and you tell us. And God said, okay, I agree to that. So that means only the prophet gets to know the will of God, which means the only way you can know what God's will for you as a nation is is if the prophet comes and talks to you and tells you. Because he's the only one that has the spirit. And he's the only one that was actually on the divine council. And he's the only one that went through that board meeting for you and, paid, and took all the minutes. <laughs> now he comes down, and here's the thing. That means, what if he's not really a true prophet of God? And the only way you can know the will of God is through the prophet, but he's not or she is not legit. And you're used to Moses, and everything that came out of Moses' mouth was God. Because Moses was faithful and obedient. And now you've got this guy or girl who's rose up, and she's like, or he is like, I'm a prophet of God. And you know that prophets know the will of God, and they always, and you have to obey the prophet because of the will of God, and you start following them. And you begin to realize later, this is not God's prophet. The other scenario is, are prophets still human? Are they perfect? No. Can they make mistakes? Did Moses make a mistake? Did he get judged harshly for it? 
What happens if your incredibly righteous guy or girl who is a prophet has been really good their entire life, but then they screw something up and they start misleading the nation, even though they're not an evil false prophet? And so God is now saying, this is how you test it. This is why two things will happen if the prophet is false or messes up. Either the entire nation will go astray because they're listening to the false prophet, but most of the time, God will kill the prophet immediately. Now, why does God deal so harshly with the prophets? We've already talked about this with Moses, but it's because they know God better than everybody else. That's why they're held to a higher standard. But here's the other thing, because they're the only one who knows the will of God. And if they're false or they get it wrong, then they mislead everyone. So Jeremiah 31, 31 comes along, and Jeremiah, a prophet, who knows the will of Yahweh, who speaks on God's behalf, and the only way they can know what God wants from them is when Jeremiah tells them, he comes along and says, a day will come when I will make a new covenant with you that will not be like the old covenant. I will put my law on your hearts, And everyone will know the will of Yahweh, and you'll no longer need a teacher to tell you what God's will is. And this is where everything changes, because once Jesus dies on the cross and pays for your sin, you now can have the Holy Spirit not just come upon you, but indwell you. And when that Holy Spirit indwells you, guess who else was on the divine counsel of Yahweh? The Holy Spirit. So now the divine counsel of Yahweh is in you and speaking to you all the time. And then now when somebody comes along and says, this is God's will for your life, I don't need to be completely dependent on him because I've got the divine counsel in me too. Now, are we still a body of Christ? Yes. Am I perfect? No. Do I need you to speak into my life to help guide me? Yes. But am I completely dependent upon your word and your word alone, and I have no idea how to find out God's will on my own? No. And that's what's different. Why are there no prophets today? Because you don't need a prophet anymore because the Holy Spirit's in you. And to follow a prophet today would to, well, it would be idolatry because you have something greater than a prophet, and it's called the Holy Spirit. Why would you go to a prophet that comes into your church and follow him or her when you have the Holy Spirit in you and the divine counsel is residing in your heart. In some ways, we all become prophets now. Now, it does not say you don't need teachers anymore. It doesn't say that you don't need each other to help each other understand the will of God and the Word of God. It just means that you're not going to be completely dependent just on one person. And if that person goes wrong, you're going to go wrong with them. Now, it could be like, ah... This doesn't quite feel right to me. So maybe I should talk to other people in the church and get other counsel. And maybe I should pray about this. And then you begin to realize they're the kind of the only ones saying that. Because the Holy Spirit's telling me something different. And everybody else who I trust and respect is saying something different. So I'm glad I didn't make my decision based on them. And that's why it's different now. We don't need prophets anymore because the divine counsel's in your heart now. 
But back then, there is no death and resurrection Christ. Sin hasn't been paid for. Nobody's allowed the Holy Spirit and dwell them. And nobody is righteous enough on their own to all have the divine counsel. So only a few people are chosen. And the question is, how do I know if you're legit or not? How do I know if this image of God is real or not? And that's where verse 32 of chapter 12 comes in. You must be careful to do everything I am commanding you. Do not add or subtract from it. Suppose a prophet or one who foretells by dreams should appear among you and show you a sign or a wonder. And the sign or wonder should come to pass concerning what he has said to you, and you namely let us and to you, namely, let us follow other gods, gods whom you do not previously known, and let us serve them. You must not listen to the word of that prophet or the dreamer, for Yahweh your God will be testing you to see if you love him with all of your mind and being. Here's what he says. One of the things the Bible makes it very clear is that every prophet that comes to you, you must ask for a sign. So the prophet says, this is God's will for you, you must do it. The first thing that comes out of my mouth is, prove it. Give me a sign that only God could do to prove that what you're saying is really truly from God. And you'll see that over and over again. So when the man of God comes and judges Jeroboam in around chapter 13 and says, you are a false king, you're leading everybody astray, I predict that one day Josiah will come and tear down your altar and destroy these two golden calves you've built. And he says, and the sign is this altar will immediately split open. And it does. So the prophet usually tells you something, but sometimes advice is long-term. Like, you should buy stock in this company. Well, that's going to take some time, and it's going to take some time for you to see the benefits of that. And by the time you realize that that's a false prophet and a false advice, that prophet might be long and gone. But if you ask and demand a sign immediately, then there's greater evidence that he is from God. But here's what's interesting. This says that false prophets are capable of performing miracles. Moses performed miracles, and did he always get it right? Elijah performed miracles, but he's going to get it wrong, and God's going to fire him when he gets it wrong. So even if they're a good prophet, that doesn't mean every single time they're totally in alignment with God. They're still sinners. So he says, even if they come to you with miracles, even if they come to you with dreams, and they can interpret your dreams and they're accurate, if what they say does not align with this covenant, they're false. Now here's the thing. That's the greatest test. Because if Satan sends you a false prophet, their words will never align with the word of God. Why? Because if it aligns with the word of God, then it's not a false prophet because he's pointing you towards God. And Satan never wants to point you towards God, so he'll always change the message or twist the message. And that's one guarantee. You can look at the miracles. Some people, oh, but they did all these miracles. Oh, but they knew things about me that nobody else knew. Oh, but they knew things about my dead grandpa that's long gone. Da, 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 da. Who cares? All that matters is, are they in alignment with the covenant? And God has given them five books that have given them a really good picture of who he is as his character and what he expects of them and what the law is. And anybody who's false is going to automatically twist it because Satan wants to point you away, not towards. But that's where you have to be discerning. That means 
that the only way you can know a true or false prophet is you have to know the Word of God. And you have to know it so well that if you slightly twist it, the red lights on the dashboard of your car, so to speak, just start flashing like crazy. And see, it doesn't matter if they went to heaven and came back and had a really good story about it. It doesn't matter whether they did all these miracles. It doesn't matter whether Jim Jones healed people. It doesn't matter of that stuff. Yes, that can be evidence of a false prophet. They keep failing and they can't do the miracle at all. But demons can perform miracles. And that's not giving demons too much power because humans can kind of perform miracles. I mean, we've been able to pull off pretty amazing things. Transfer information from one world, one place in the world to the other place through radio waves and ones and zeros. Okay, lots of things. Curing certain kinds of cancer. We all can do something miraculous. The question is, do your words align with the covenant? And that's their only test. And that's what he's telling you. How do you know a true image from a false image? Whatever God is pointing it towards. If the image reflects a different God, it's false. If the image reflects the true God, then it's true. That's your number one test. And so when we get to 1 John chapter 4, John says, anyone who comes and denies that Jesus, meaning that he's human, is the Christ, meaning that he's God, and he died for your sins, if he denies those three things, he's a false spirit. Same test. And you need to pay attention to that because every cult that has ever come about has either said Jesus is God, but he's not human. Or they've said he's not God, but he's human. Or they've said, yeah, but his death and resurrection is not absolutely necessary, or you can do other things in addition to it. And I've never heard anything different than those three things from false religions and prophets and cults. And so that's the test. The test is, does it align with the covenant? That's your best test. But it means that you have to know the word of God. Even the difficult boarding parts like Leviticus. Because sometimes that's what the false spirits play on. You must not listen to the words, verse 3, of that prophet or dreamer. For Yahweh your God will be testing you to see. Now what you say, but, but God, why would you let false prophets come among us? We're the chosen people of God, right? This is supposed to be people only. Well, because I'm testing you. Because here's your exam. Your exam is, you are in the covenant. And the exam is, how well do you know the word of God? And the only way I can test you is by bringing the counterfeits. You and I, when we take tests, we check A, B, C, or D, true, false, extended answer, and some guy goes, no, 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 no. Eh, 70%, that's good enough. But God, the test God gives is, the person actually comes in the village and begins to say something quite different. And it's a true and false question. And the true and false question is, are they matching up with the Word of God? And the only way you can answer is if you know the Word of God. And that's how God tests you. That's His tests. They're not written. They're real-life practical, this guy just came into my village. And that's what He's saying. This is why I allow it. As for you, that prophet or the dreamer, he must be executed before he encouraged rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you from the land 
of Egypt, redeeming you from that place of salvation because he has tried to entice you from the way of Yahweh your God as commanded you to go. In that way, you must purge the evil from within. So what is the consequence for idolatry? Death. What's the consequence of following a false prophet? Death. The prophet and you, if you fail the test, you see... (laughs) You don't get a percentage, and if you're anywhere of 60% or higher, then that's good enough. So the guy who's performing brain surgeon, asking what his grade point average was, you never knows that. It's just, all you care about is he graduated from medical school. He could have gotten a D in everything, and now he's doing brain surgery. So that's not the test. The test is pass, fail, life, death. That's the grade. Now, A lot of people say, wow, that's kind of harsh, God. But remember, is he commanding you to kill people who preach a different God in other nations outside the covenant? No. These are people who've risen up within the covenant. And they say that I am a part of the covenant. And that I am serving and speaking on behalf of the God of this covenant. And they violate the covenant. That's much different. God does not give you permission to go out today in America and kill idolaters or preach against them and slander them and tear them down. He does not give you permission for people who are like um, people who preach a false religion. You don't have a right to go to the Muslims. You don't have a right to go to the Hindus. You don't have a right to go to all these people and say, oh, I'm going to get rid of you or I'm going to tear you down. They're not in the covenant. But you do have a responsibility to deal with the Jim Jones who rose up within the covenant and began to preach something different. You have a responsibility to deal with the people in your church who may not be as popular or as dogmatic or even as crazy as the Jim Jones, but still things they're saying are just not quite right. And they have an authority in the church, whether as a Sunday school teacher or as an elder, that could mislead people over time. You have a responsibility to deal with them, not kill them. But you do have a responsibility to remove them. And so this is what God is saying. These are covenant people rising up within the covenant, proclaiming the covenant God, but twisting things drastically. Which means they're a person that says, I will do everything the covenant says, or you can kill me. And then they go do the complete opposite, but then they also intentionally mislead other people. They intentionally mislead other people. And that's why the consequences are harsh. If God punishes his own true prophets for messing up harshly, then how much harsher is the punishment going to be for a guy who's intentionally getting it wrong and misleading people? And so they have a responsibility to put him to death. Then he goes on in verse 6. Suppose your own full brother, your son, your daughter, your beloved wife, or your closest friend should seduce and secretly encourage you to go and serve other gods that neither you nor your ancestors have previously known. The gods of the surrounding people, whether near or far from you, from one end of the earth or the other, you must not give to him or even listen to him. Do not feel sympathy for him or spare for him or cover up for him. Instead, you must kill him without fail. Your own hand must be the first to strike him and then the hands of the whole community. And you must stone him to death because he tried to entice you away from Yahweh your God and delivered you from the land of Egypt in place of slavery. Thus all Israel will hear and be afraid. No longer will they continue to do evil like this among you. Now, 
He goes on the next story and says, suppose this is someone you love. As hard as it will be, it is better for them to die than for all of you to go into idolatry and lose all of your lives in the judgment under the law. I don't care how hard it is. I don't care how much you're afraid of losing that relationship. You have a responsibility to go to whoever it is and say, this is not truth. And this needs to be dealt with. And so God says, I don't care if you know them or you don't. I don't care how close they are to you. And notice how he keeps saying, who entices you away from the God who delivered you from Egypt. The implication is they haven't saved you. They have no right to be your authority. I'm the one that saved you. I'm your authority. Is your friendship or your desire to be liked greater than your devotion to Yahweh? And that's what it really comes down to. You're not allowed to put your relationship with somebody else above your relationship with God if they are not right. Punishments are harsh. So, in chapter 13, he reminds them of the punishment for idolatry. And we already talked about it in Exodus, but he reminds them that the death penalty is the punishment for idolatry because you're leading the entire nation astray. Any questions, comments? Well, here's the other thing. Why stoning? He says, if you're the one that finds them, you're to stone them first. So if my brother, or my wife, or my daughter, I have to throw the first stone. Now remember, these aren't little pebbles. These are giant rocks. Can you imagine going up to somebody you love and being the first one to do it? I mean, I can't imagine being anywhere in the line, let alone the first. But why is that? One. I've never killed somebody, but I think by now we know enough people who've been in war and we've seen enough movies that killing people, no matter how, what kind of a person you are, does something seriously to you. It alters you, it destroys you in some way, and people live with that for the rest of their life. We've seen enough examples for the wars in America to know how people come back change. Can you imagine going to somebody and killing them? You being the first one to throw the rock means you're less likely to falsely accuse somebody just because you don't like them. Because we've seen that, right? People just falsely accuse somebody to make some profit or game or to get them in trouble and get rid of them because they don't like them. And so you're like, oh, I just have to say they said something that's not right about God and now we get to kill them. But then if you're the one that has to throw the first stone and you're standing over them, you might say, oh, uh, I was lying. <laughs> and you're less likely to do false accusations. The second thing is when the whole community is involved, it's a lot different than sending somebody in some isolated room that you never happen. They just kind of die and disappear. You never hear again. You're all facing them face to face. You all have to participate in it. You're all involved in it, which means the community is more likely to have a good trial to make sure that your witness is right which means less likely for false trials. And the third is this. If you all have a responsibility for killing them, and they all know that they're going to die because you're a community that actually obeys God and actually kills these people, then there's less likelihood of you failing in your responsibility to teach your family the right things about God so they go off to stray. Because you know if you fail, you'll have to kill them. 
And two, they're less likely to stray and start intentionally misleading people because they know you're a community that actually does this. And I know a lot of people today say, wow, these punishments are so harsh. How barbaric? How could any civilization? But if you actually do it, you will never have to do it. The problem is the reason a lot of crimes get repeated over and over again is one, they're in families that don't really teach moral responsibility because the family doesn't appreciate the serious consequences of not being a good parent and teaching it right. Or two, when you do go out to prison, you get cable television, three square meals, a warm bed, and, and yes, prison can be bad, but in some cases, for some people, prison is better than the life that they had outside of prison. And so the reality is you wouldn't have to deal with that a lot. Now, I'm not saying that if you did this perfectly, all of our problems go away because we're still in a fallen world. But it may not be as drastic. And so this is the command. Punish idolatry. 